Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And I sent out a notice this morning that uh, we would be talking about uh, land, life, love, and liberty. And uh, so that's that's a pretty broad subject. And one of the things that, that actually a numerous things that uh, came across my uh, desk in life to this week uh, encouraged me to make that a topic. And uh, one is that uh, there was somebody who was writing on one of the groups, one of the network groups. And these network groups, they're, they're Google email network groups. That's not the church. It's just a, a way of communicating through the Internet with people who uh, stumble on our website or what have you and want to know more. And the purpose of the network is to create congregations. And the purpose of congregations is the same as they've been since the beginning, for people to gather together and to form a, literally form a government of the people, for the people, and by the people in the form of a network where no one is ruler over anybody else. There are basic rules, but they have been They've come down to us through the ages, and we see them in the Ten Commandments, and we see them in uh, ancient laws of many civilizations. And they, they're basics, and most people don't understand even the Ten Commandments, uh, even though it, it should be just absolutely self-explanatory. And even when Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai and gave it to the people, they didn't understand, so he wrote... You know, 700 statutes to try to explain them. That's all the statutes are, is explanations of the basic principles in the Ten Commandments. You know, like uh, people think uh, thou shalt not commit adultery has to do with intercourse. It has to do with adulteration. Adulterating the body. And there's your body. And then there is your wife's body or your husband's body and you are no more twain but one so to enter into a relationship a husband and wife type relationship with somebody outside of those two is an adulteration of the body but there are many things that would adulterate the body what you eat what you consume what you put in your body uh what you put your body into you know, if you if you go sit in an opium den and breathe in the opium, that's not good. You know, what you watch on TV, that could be an adulteration. What you watch on the Internet could be an adulteration. So there's lots of ways you can adulterate your mind and your body. And it it affects your spouse. And that's adultery. You know, that's why Jesus says, you know, he who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in his heart and done anything, but he's, he's poisoning his relationship. So I only bring that up so that you can see that there is, uh, kind of a 
pattern, a spiritual pattern in everything. And so, thou shalt not commit adultery has to do with a lot of things that you could be doing short of sexual intercourse outside of marriage or in opposition to your marriage vows. It's adulterating. Anything that is adulterating is adulterating. I mean, and thou shalt not kill. That includes thou shalt not cut off thy neighbor's finger because <laughs> you've killed his finger by cutting it off. It includes not taking a bite out of your neighbor. Uh, you know, taking from the life of your neighbor, any part of his life, anything that, desiring to take from your neighbor, coveting your neighbor's goods, anything that is your neighbor's is actually listed as a, a, a sin or a violation of the Ten Commandments. You don't have to just steal it. You can just desire it. You might, you know, people say taxation is theft. Taxation is not theft. Taxation is often justice <laughs> because you haven't been just with us and therefore you are now subject to taxation. It's not stealing, but it is coveting. If you desire that your neighbor have to pay in for your benefit, then you are desiring what is your neighbor's for yourself. And so... Taxation is, I, I cannot imagine a situation where taxation is not, uh, anything that we call taxation today, is not in some way or another violating the law on coveting your neighbor's goods. And certainly, to does, that doesn't mean to be taxed is, is a sin for you. You may owe the tax and you should pay the tax. As a matter of fact, if you refuse to pay the tax, you may be coveting what you rightfully owe your neighbor or owe Caesar. If you owe Caesar, pay Caesar. And desiring not to pay Caesar when you actually owe him. Now, the question is, do you owe Caesar? Why do you owe Caesar? Why do you owe Caesar so much? Well, that's that's a legitimate question. Do you want a legitimate answer or do you want to imagine you know? <laughs> Well, that's that's one of the problems is that men, you know, idolatry is creating an image that's not true and wanting to believe in that image. And that's an image, an image of the truth that is simply not true is a form of idolatry. Okay, so what does all this have to do with land and liberty and love and life? Well, everything, and we'll see if we can't tie all that together. Somebody wrote uh, uh, that uh, talking about a lodial title, they wanted uh, somebody to read an article that they had uh, come across by somebody who's, I guess, a realtor, and uh, has some knowledge of history, and uh, put forward a, a legitimate article, but it's missing some major points, major information. One of the things that anarchists often try to say, there's what they call ANCOMs and and uh, you know, uh, ANCAPs, which are capitalists who believe in anarchy, <laughs> evidently, and co ANCOMs are communists who believe in anarchy. 
and they they you know the ncoms say that ncaps is it can't have capitalism without the state and that's because they don't understand something they think you can't have cap you i mean a squirrel who gathers nuts gathers nuts that's capitalism he is taking possession of the means of production which is the nuts <laughs> and he's storing them up that's capitalism and uh, he actually provides a service because sometimes he buries those nuts and they become trees. And then they make more nuts. But uh, the point is is that the first squirrel was a capitalist because he was gathering the means of production for himself. He wasn't gathering them for other squirrels. He was gathering them for himself and for his family and for the reproduction of the species. And that's capitalism. So capitalism is a natural thing. Because capitalism, all it is, is the individual control of the means of production. And of course, one of the major means of production is the individual. So he would be in control of his own labor. Nobody would have a right to his labor but him. He, Whatever he produces, whatever he makes, he has a possessory right in that thing. And of course, you know, when the squirrel gathers his nuts, he has a right to those nuts. He has, because he has expended energy in his life to gather those nuts into a, a clump and stored them, he has a right, first right of use of those nuts. If he dies, then that right may pass on to somebody else. But he has the first right, and he has a right to defend what he has vested in gathering those nuts. Now, does he own the nut entirely? Well, no, the nut kind of belongs to the tree. (laughs) But the tree dropped it, and he found it. So, you know, what do they say? Uh, Losers are weepers. (laughs) finders or keepers so he has a right to that nut and the fact is is you know the the nut may return to the soil and become a tree eventually too and uh, and then he wouldn't be able to eat that nut but he his children would be able to eat the nuts from the tree that grew so anyway it's all part of a cycle he doesn't own the nut entirely but he owns a right to the nut because he has expended energy in the collection of that nut. And so now he has a vested interest. Nobody can take that nut from his storehouse without taking away his right, his first right of collection. And so, now, that may be hard for you to put together in your mind, some of you, but uh, maybe you'll start to, as we look at land titles, we will see if we can get a connection where we see that because you've, you know, if you if you went out and mined gold ore uh, or panned in the river until you found gold nuggets and you accumulated them in a bag, you ha- now have a possessory right to the gold that's in that bag. You haven't changed the gold any. If it was ore, maybe you crushed the ore 
and you heated it up and you smelted it and you got out the impurities and then now you have this concentrated little gold bar. The gold still is just dirt. It's still just land. It's still just substance. You didn't create the gold. But you collected it and refined it. So now you have a possessory right to that gold. Nobody can take that gold without also taking away all the energy and your life's blood that you have invested in accumulating that gold into the little gold pouch. Into the little bars or coins that you put in, you know, the... uh, uh, discs, the little golden discs, we won't call them coins, we'll just call them discs uh, that you have in your, your little leather pouch that you carry on your side. You you didn't create the gold, but you you transmuted them into a form with the expenditure of your life is now invested in that gold disc. And nobody can take that disc away from you without taking away that investment. That's capitalism. You have invested in this substance so that no one can now take it away. Like a tree. You planted a tree. A little seedling. A little tiny apple seedling. Maybe you actually uh, planted seed and grew up that apple. And then you went and got tree branches from an apple tree that was really producing and grafted them into this seedling. And then it grew up into a full-sized tree and now it's producing apples. You have a possessory right to those apples. God's not going to eat them. The rain is not going to eat them. The soil really isn't going to eat them. And the tree returns stuff to the soil all the time. It returns the leaves every year and... uh, and itself will return to the soil. But right now, the apples that are being produced are being produced because your sweat and blood and time were invested in that apple tree so that it is now producing. And nobody can take an apple from that tree without taking away some of that sweat and blood that you have put into your your investment into that tree. And nobody has a right to take away your sweat and blood. No natural right to take away your sweat and blood without your say-so. So therefore, you could gather those apples out of the tree and sell them. And what you're selling is your sweat and blood and toil. You're also selling the apple and the water that came from the rain and all these other things. But you're really not selling them. They just, they're inseparable. You're selling your sweat and blood and toil, which was yours. That's capitalism. That's your right to sell. If you were in a collective, the whole collective would own the apple. And your labor would be pooled together to create this apple. And that's what you call a common purse. Your rights to whatever you produce is now held in a common purse. And the Bible tells us that the common purse runs towards evil, runs towards death. That it is, that it will be destructive somehow and bring devastation. And of course, if you look at the record of communism and even much of the socialism in the last century, 
produced, what, 100 million deaths at the hands of communist regimes. So, of course, people will say, oh, but that wasn't real communism. Well, what is real communism? <laughs> that wasn't. No, it's it's part of that imagination. They want to believe that the way of one purse, where you have this collective purse, is successful. And yet, time shows us, history shows us, and clearly the Bible says that it runs towards evil and that it is destructive. The Bible is promoting capitalism. It is promoting... Now, we're not talking corporatism. We're talking capitalism. Capitalism is the private ownership of the means of production, which is primarily your labor. You get to keep what you produce. Now, occasionally you can get together with other people and like build a boat. And that each of you own that boat. A portion of that boat. Well, I would recommend that you have a strong agreement between yourselves as to exactly how to use that boat. I knew Vietnamese families who came over here with nothing. Got menial jobs where they barely made enough money. They crammed themselves into an apartment and they all learned to live together and save their money. And then they bought wood and then they went out on the beach and they accumulated the wood right on the beach. They built a big boat. I mean, a pretty good sized boat. And then they launched it and became fishermen. And now they're in, all independently wealthy. Actually, the, the parents, some of them have passed away, but uh, their children all did extremely well and started with nothing. I mean, in the tools they had to build this boat with, a handful of tools. They couldn't afford anything expensive. Uh, one of the items they had was a square. Because they needed that square to make all their cuts. But they were they were craftsmen. They had done this in their home country. Made boats and, and, and gone fishing. <laughs> and that's what they did. And they all got to quit their day jobs. And went out and became very successful in the fishing industry. And of course now have lots of boats. But uh, that was capitalism. They they could and they did it together in a cooperative, but not as communists, but as people in an agreement. And of course, it was all family people, and of course, eventually they hired people outside of the family. But they became very successful because they invested their sweat and their blood and their tears in making this boat, which became a fleet of boats. And that's capitalism, and you have should have a natural right to do that. Okay, so now what does this have to do with land? Well, uh, we'll get into it more, but your land, your dirt, you're composed of elements of, you know, uh, oxygen and iron and and uh, silicates and and carbon and all sorts of little atoms come together and make living cells and those living cells to the tune of millions and billions of cells produce people. And uh, they walk around and they're walking, talking, breathing land. That's what you're made of. You're made of land. You're made of earth. And you should have a right because God has breathed a soul into you you should have a right to yourself. And we'll talk about how that came about and how the that's referenced in the Bible. But 
Now we'll, we'll shift gears a little bit and go back to the original email where somebody says, uh, was talking about this article of Elodial Land. And Elodial Land, uh, you know, Elodial title, let's put it that way, to land, is a real property ownership system where the real property is owned free and clear of any superior landlord. In this case, the owner will have an absolute title over his or her property. Property owned under a lodial title is referred to as a lodial land. So there, there can be no other landlord. You're the only landlord. You're the steward of the land. And there is no other competing Individual. See, if you if you purchase the land collectively, everybody else has a little bit of say so. And if there's two or more, if it's democratic, they may have a superior say so. So if you had three people owned a piece of land, two of them would have together a superior right to that land. So the idea of uh, an individual holding an allodial title means no other individual has a right over his claim to the land. Well, that doesn't really exist very much anymore. I mean, we have a allodial title here in the United States. There was actually a large chunk of land here in Lake County in Oregon that was for sale a number of years ago, and it was an allodial title land. And... Uh, if I had a couple million dollars or several million dollars, I don't know how many millions of dollars it, it would take, I could have gone and bought a low deal title and owned that land. And uh, just to give you a picture, though, that land is the railroad, <laughs> the railroad down in Lakeview that goes from Lakeview to, I think it goes into California all the way to El Torres. But it's a low deal title, no taxes on that land. From uh, one station to the to the next, but it's not really a lodial title. It, they, you know, it's listed as such. It's a lodial title in relationship to taxes, and but you don't have uh, there is. I wouldn't want to say that there is no control, other superior control over that land because. Railroads are highly regulated groups. You know, to run that railroad, it's it's uh, going to be heavily scrutinized by the federal government. But it would have been a lodial in numerous senses. But uh, total lodial, no. There's actually another piece of land, very tiny piece of land, I won't tell anybody where it is, that is not on the tax rolls. And it's just simply been overlooked. It's never been on the tax rolls. And it, uh, I'm one of the few people who know where it is. <laughs> and I won't tell the county where it is. They don't even know. They don't even know. They're not taxing it. So that would be an allodial title. But there's more to that. We'll have to talk about when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom.
So welcome back. So, so you have low deals like uh, railroad, uh, but it's not truly or purely because railroads are highly regulated by the federal government. They are almost sovereign in some ways, but uh, and they get away with murder if they stay within the regulations. But uh, they are they are separate. Uh, certainly from the states, they're not subject to state taxes, etc. And there is no federal property tax. But uh, and uh, but anyway, that's that's another form. And then I like I said, there's pieces that have been overlooked. Uh, I mentioned some other pieces, uh, like down in Laguna Beach, there was a piece of a lodial title, and it was owned by a corporation. Um, and uh, until the, but the corporation was owned by an individual and a famous, famous individual, and he eventually passed away. And then uh, his corporate uh, cronies began to fight over these pieces, but some of them still in existence. Uh, there are uh, other pieces of ground. Of course, you got embassies. Um, there are several embassies that, uh, you know, like a, there's actually one where you drive into it and it says you are now entering the Vatican. And it's in Ohio. Ohio. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so you can literally drive up into the driveway and there's a sign there that says you are entering the Vatican. Because it's... It's separate property from the United States. It's not under this landlordship of the United States. Theoretically, there are limitations to even that. Um, they could suddenly say that they no longer recognize, uh, you know, the um, Vatican as a sovereign entity, and uh, then simply they have to take the sign down. <laughs> Uh, the it will revert back to the the United States, um, and like I said, there's a, there's property that has literally been overlooked by the bookkeeping in counties, and so therefore it has never been on the tax rolls, doesn't exist on the tax rolls, is not taxed, and therefore, judging by its personal history, um, who owns that land? That may be up for a lodial title. Uh, there's other lands. Cemeteries are, they're not owned by individuals usually, but cemeteries can be off the tax rolls and have no reporting whatsoever in order to stay off the tax rolls. They're off the tax rolls in perpetuity. And so therefore, that would be an allodial title in essence. Some churches, if the churches are organized like Christ said to organize, could hold property that would be separate from the world. You know, I know of a, a group of people who live in Malaysia, have lived there for centuries now. And uh, they gather, they have their own government that's separate from the Malaysian government. They have their own system of, of social welfare. They are really non-participators in Malaysian government. But they're tolerated. They're usually very hard-working people, very law-abiding people. But they are separate from the Malaysian government. And they govern themselves. And their government meets on a regular basis. And the people meet on a regular basis to discuss, you know, their. it's kind of a voluntary system of government. But they discuss, you know, matters that relate to government 
for the people and they come to agreements. But they meet in cemeteries because they have to meet annually. Uh, actually, they should meet probably three, four times a year. They should meet uh, and discuss government business. It's a voluntary government. Uh, and they do that. But they have to meet outside of the jurisdiction of the Malaysian government. Well, do they go to another country? Then they'd be in the jurisdiction of that country. So they meet in cemeteries because cemeteries are a lodial title, literally owned by the dead. <laughs> so they, they meet there and discuss government business and government issues and deal with government matters in a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Who else do you know used to meet in cemeteries in history? The catacombs. The Christians. They met in the burial grounds. Because they lived in the world, but they were not of the world. They had their own government. And they often met, you know, once the fall of Jerusalem, uh, they often were forced to meet in cemeteries to discuss the government of God and issues concerning the government of God, which is a government, according to Wycliffe, a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And they met on land that was separate from the world, the organized systems of men. And traditionally, that has been cemeteries. And so they met in the catacombs and to deal with government business, to tend to the weightier matters. Because it was important to have such land. Now, the church had land too. Had land in other countries. Had land in France and Great Britain. Almost right away. It had land. It had Jerusalem. It had the temple. The, the apostles were working daily in the temple. Temples were not buildings originally. Temples were areas that were oft, you know, that were kind of like, a, what are you, asylum. The asylum state. When you have an asylum from, uh, you could go to a church and they couldn't arrest you in the church. Sometimes they would limit that to a particular stone. You could stand on a stone that was at the church. As long as you stayed on that stone, nobody could arrest you. Nobody could harm you. It's kind of ollie ollie olson free, you know. It's, you can't touch me here because I'm on the stone. And because it was an elodial stone. It was a, it was set aside. They had no jurisdiction there. So while you were on that stone, you were a total capitalist in possession of the right to your own body and nobody could grab you or seize you. And they respected this, amazingly enough. Uh, so, anyway, but the idea was it was important to have a piece of ground that you would meet on in order to be the kingdom of God. I mean, what was the very first thing that Abraham bought? Abraham had no land. He was a wanderer. He could have been uh, a prince in Ur. He could have been king in Haran. But he left all that and was a Hebrew, a wanderer. And he owned no land. And he just went around and either rented pasture or used pasture that was in the wilderness. And he could get away with that back then. But the first land he bought was a cemetery plot. 
and he actually made a big point out of the fact that he was it was the guys wanted to give him that land session it to him but he said no I want to buy it I want to count the money out and what did he pay for it other land he just traded land the land he traded was silver which is just dirt that is highly refined into a particular mineral we call silver and that silver was traded for a big bunch of dirt which he now owns now we're going to talk about this more later does he actually own the dirt or does he own a right to the dirt and then a vested right to the dirt you know like if you were to compost uh, you know gather horse manure and cow manure and straw and you compost and compost this you know piles and piles of you know with sawdust and manure and so you produce this rich black compost and then you spread it on an acre of ground now you've invested all your sweat and blood into that ground and it's almost impossible to separate your compost now from that dirt so now you have a right to that dirt because you poured out your sweat and toil and blood into that dirt. Now, that's that's how you end up with a possessionary right to the land. And can that mean that you can bar everybody else from coming on that land? Not necessarily. And we can go into those details later. Maybe we'll have questions in the last show today where or people can put in questions and send them to us by email in the network and we will address them but anyway so i'm just trying to give you a, a picture of how you own land how this idea of ownership of land comes about and uh, give you some examples now i've had over the years countless people say that they have an allodial title in land um, they got their land patents all these kinds of things they got true and actual title and they own the land. And it's one of the first things that I saw years and years ago before I really began to understand all this when I was still a young, young man, teenager, uh, had already uh, been to St. Joseph's College and studied in the seminary and stuff, but I was still a teenager. I hadn't even graduated th- technically from high school yet, according to California standards. But uh, the... Uh, I saw a guy on TV who was thought he owned his land and the government was taking him off the land because he had failure to pay taxes. And he was claiming that he had a superior right to the title of this land. But they were saying otherwise. And I saw in his face this desperation, this desire, this uh, commitment. And he was... He was being seized, literally, and dragged off the land. And I knew it was important. It was a Kodak moment for me. But I didn't understand exactly how all this works. But anyway, when we've investigated most of these people who claim that they have these titles, some of them are simply misinformed and deluded and sincere people. But some, many of them are charlatans out selling land patent schemes and what have you. And uh, one guy I remember stands out most of my mind, and I could name you numerous of them, was selling land patent packages. At one time, he was selling packages for as much as $10,000. 
Most of them were going for like 800 to to $1,000. I figured he collect, must have collected at least 100000 or more dollars over the years in his land patent schemes. It, it was total fraud. He was saying no, he had a land patent. He wasn't paying the taxes. When we actually investigated the property, we found that his mother was paying the taxes every year. She'd come in and pay cash. They remembered her. That's the only reason he hadn't been removed them from the property by the county. He had no special title to the land, and yet he was selling these packets, telling everybody, "I haven't paid taxes in ten years." Bunk. That was a total lie. Another guy was doing the same kind of thing, but his father was coming in and paying the, the taxes. He wasn't paying them. He hadn't paid in years, but they were being paid. And so, but he was making money selling these schemes to other people, telling, because people want to hear it. You know, sucker born every day. And then, like I say, some, you know, they confuse the paperwork and it takes the county a while before it gets around to confiscating the property. But eventually they do. And then, you know, all their claims are washed. I've seen over and over again people losing their land for no good reason because of these ridiculous schemes. Now, if you if you go read our, we have a page on legal titles and it's part of the book Covenants of the Gods. And, and I quote from, uh, Clark, uh, it wasn't Clark's, this was from, um, James Truslow Adams' uh, March of Democracy, History of the United States. And, uh, uh, actually I've got the page number, page 176, it says here, um, and it says, the ordinary citizen living on his farm, owned in fee simple, Untroubled by any relics of feudalism, very important statement, untaxed save by himself, saying his say to all the world in town meetings, had gained a new self-reliance, wrestling with his soul and plow on weekdays, and the innumerable points of the minister's sermons on Sundays and meeting days, he was becoming a tough nut for any imperial system to crack. So, here we go back to nuts again. Uh, a tough nut for any imperial system to crack. And, of course, that nut has been cracked. Uh, because you do not live on your land in fee simple. You certainly are not untaxed uh, by any means. Uh, you don't necessarily, uh, you're, you're not self-reliant. And uh, you, your ministers are brutes, and uh, you can go listen to our our talk on brutish ministers, brutish pastors, as it talks about in the Bible, and find out what that was. Um, this particular article goes on and talks about ties, and it talks about liber homo, a free man, a free man lawfully competent. Um, to act as a juror. That was what one of the definitions of a freeman. Uh, liberary in uh, the Saxon law, a freeman was, had a possessors, were possessors of a loyal land. They actually owned land. Now, early Americans came here to own land, to become landed immigrants, where they, you know, the pilgrims turned down contract after contract until they had one where they would eventually own the land 
as it says in fee simple, an allodial title. It wouldn't be a lot, but it'd be some. And they would be the landed Americans because they actually own the land. Americans today don't own their land. They have a legal title. And that article goes and explains the difference between true and actual title or lodial title and a legal title. A legal title, by definition, does not include the beneficial interest. And the beneficial interest is the right to own the property. And that's still held in some sort of trust by the state. And so people who want to say they have an allodial title want to say this state no longer has any interest. Well, I, I tell you that unless you've been seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that looks like something particular, unless you've been gathering in a way to take care of the needy of your society by faith, hope, and charity, by love, you do not own the land. Yeah, I don't care what paperwork you do. I just don't believe it. But if you want to show me the paperwork and not beat around the bush with I'm going to look for it and see if I can dig it out somewhere. And I've got it all written up, but I can't really show it to you. And, oh, yeah, I have the title, but I don't want to tell you where it is. Well, you know, you're wasting our time. If you've got something, let's see it. Be forthright and open. But people generally speaking, or not. Because it doesn't stand the test of scrutiny. But anyway, the the article that we have on legal title goes through a great deal of information about titles, allodial property as distinguished from a vassal or a feudatory. Uh, talks about equity. Talks about legal tender. Talks about uh, legal title defined as what a legal title means. And again, a legal title does not include the beneficial interest or beneficial use, which is why you pay a use tax. Now, simply because you're not paying a use tax, and this is why I give you the example of the railroads, and you may be able to say it's an allodial title in relationship to state taxes, property taxes collected by the county, doesn't mean you have an allodial title. You still may be under a superior landlord who makes you exempt from the state tax, but not exempt from regulation. And so, it's not truly allodial in the true sense and full sense of the word, because there's still a superior landlord. He's just not taxing you, but he is regulating you. Now, we're going to tie all this together uh, so that you can you can see these. You can read the article on legal title. But I had a number of comments from people who were discussing these things. And that's why I gave you that definition of a lodial t- title. Property owned under a lodial title, referred to as a lodial hand, is there, is, is there is no other superior landlord, which may be evidenced not only with property tax, but maybe by regulation and control. And so, why is that important? Well, like I said, to have some allodial land is important in order to be a sovereign people. The real allodial land that you want is you. You are land. We want to set you free. Now, let's go back to Egypt. In Egypt, they didn't own the land. They were given some land to use, but they were heavily taxed. Their labor was taxed. Uh, giving birth to children was taxed. 
they were they had a superior landlord. They had a welfare state, but they were in a corby system of statutory bondage. That was the bondage of Egypt. America today, Australia, Canada, all the citizens of those countries are in statutory bondage. They are subject to an income tax. If you're subject to an income tax, you are in bondage. You're in the bondage of Egypt, where they had a limit of only 20% income tax. In in most of these countries, they can go up to, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, even 70%. Actually, in some, there's no limit. They can completely tax your labor out of existence until you starve to death. And And there are many people that are suffering under such taxes now. Over the last half century, as I said, I've, uh, this is one of the things I wrote, I have seen countless claims like that of the individual who's saying that they had an allodial title. On close examination, they have proven false or premature. It has made me a skeptic of blank internet claims. So a person has to put up or shut up. <laughs> you can have to prove your point. And not with just claims, actual facts that can be researched and, and investigated. And it shouldn't be any problem if it was true. Uh, and I go on to say that I know of some titles called the Lodial, but not by individuals. And in some cases, not truly a Lodial, a Lodial title. And I've given you the example of the railroads. And um, I could also go into greater detail concerning the Laguna Beach property and, and other properties. But uh, cemeteries are pretty clearly a low deal, but again, not held by individuals. But uh, it is, I go on to say that the real answer is what these network groups offer to help people seek, which is the kingdom of God, which is people gathering together in the name of Christ, in actually the, according to the character of Christ. And... He was doing this to set you free, return every man to his property, including land, which eventually did happen as Rome fell. And uh, actually, in many places where Rome didn't have a jurisdiction, they actually, the church almost immediately held property outside of the jurisdiction of Rome. I mean, in the very first generation, they had property in other nations that were given to them by the kings of those nations. So that it wasn't just that the people sold them some land in their local kingdom. The king actually agreed to give up any possessory landlord right to the land and gave it to ministers of the church. Like I said, almost from day one, within months after uh, Christ's uh, ascension, the church was owning property all over the world. And it was because of Pentecost. There were people from all over the world there at Jerusalem at Pentecost. And they went back. Now, people already knew about Jesus. They knew about him all over the place, which is why they were. that was a big Pentecost, because they had come to see Jesus and then found out he was dead. And then found out he resurrected again. And then found out that he left and left the church in charge. And uh, this comes to a, a, a thing that I posted to the network. Jesus legalized Christianity. People often say Constantine legalized the church. And actually, in one sense, Constantine did legalize a church. What does legalize mean? Legal comes from a word, lex legis, meaning to bind. 
Constantine bound a church. Not the church, a church. But anyway, uh, the church, true Christianity, those following Christ, that was legalized by Jesus when he nailed the handwritten ordinances to the cross. He set us free. But now are you one of those us's? Because if you're not doing what he said, you're not free. Anyway, we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom and we'll give you more on this. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, Jesus legalized the church on the cross. He was appointed king uh, by the people who said, Highest Son of David. He was uh, recognized as the rightful head of the church by John the Baptist, who said, This is the one who should come after me. John the Baptist was the rightful head of the church. No one greater than John the Baptist, uh, born of Woman, yet uh, in the kingdom of God, he's not greater than anybody. That's partly because of the way the kingdom of God operates. But anyway, John the Baptist points out Jesus is the one who's going to come after me. He's going to, you know, I'm a Levite, but Jesus' father is gone, so therefore Jesus could be adopted into the tribe of the Levite and become a Levite. He could literally do that. They did it all the time. Adoption was a major way in which people could go from tribe to tribe. And uh, and so he could become the high priest, literally, which was what John the Baptist was, who had moved, removed the laver from the temple and was now in the wilderness baptizing. Because normally people would go get baptized at the temple for Constantine's baptism. They, they would often do that. and But he had removed it from the temple. And from the local synagogues out to the wilderness. And so he said, Jesus is to take my place. But then he discovers that Jesus is not only going to take his place, but he's going to be priest and king. And uh, he actually sends people to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Because he didn't even know. Very clear. Very clear. Anybody who reads the Bible should know that. And Jesus was the one. And Jesus was proclaimed king by Thousands of people at Pentecost uh, and at uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, they called him the Christ, which means the anointed, the Messiah. Every time you see him called Christ, they're saying Messiah there, if they're speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, that means he's the anointed king, the highest son of David. Very clear. The only one who could fire the money changers would be the high priest and the king. And Jesus was firing the money changers. They were the porters of the temple. Very clear. Jesus was king. He's in the royal gastaphone, in the royal treasury, instructing the ministers. says that right there in the Bible. 
And your preacher should know this and say, yeah, he's the king. He's accepted as the king. He's doing what kings do. The king of, only the king of Israel could do. Even when he appears in front of John the Baptist. I mean, uh, 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 Pilate. Pontius Pilate. <laughs> he appears in front of Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate sa- says, are you a king? And he says, thou sayest that I am a king. That's why he's being tried is because he's already there claiming to be the king. And that is the only reason that you would have to appeal to Rome to crucify him is that they was he was claiming to be a king and he wasn't a king. Then you could crucify him because he was that was insurrection to claim to be the king. That's why Rome was there since the days of Aristobulus and Hyrcanus. They come there to settle this dispute. Who is the rightful king of Israel? And right at that time, they had Herod, but he wasn't king in Jerusalem. He had his brother, Philip, but he wasn't king in Jerusalem. There was nobody sitting on the throne in Jerusalem until Jesus' triumphant entry. Then there was a king in Jerusalem. And he's doing the job of the king. I don't know how all these people go around telling you that Jesus was not accepted as king in Jerusalem. Uh, that it, the kingdom was postponed because Jesus was not accepted. They're, they're accepting him. And that's why they call it triumphant entry into Jerusalem. At Pentecost, after his death and resurrection, thousands were receiving the baptism of Jesus Christ. The apostles were working daily in the government temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house, running the social welfare system. And they even got to the point where they were getting complaints all the way from Greece. The Greeks were saying that we're not getting help here and we need help. And he says, well, we need to have what the Old Testament had. Seven men. And they said, look out amongst yourselves and we'll pick seven men that you trust and we will appoint them over this business. And that business to wait on tables, to wait on banks, to be a bank so that they can move large amounts of funds and supplies all across the Roman Empire from Jerusalem to Greece, from you know, from Galatia to Corinth, from Corinth to Ephesus, to wherever it was needed. This was real business. Of government. All the temples were government buildings. When Rome was a republic. And the republic was still intact. They took care of all the needs of their society. Through free will offerings. Ancient Israel had did the same thing. But they created an imperial Roman cult. Which you had to become a member of. And then you would have to pay into. And your sacrifice would go into these temple areas and your free bread would come out of those temple areas through these temples. That's what they were doing. This was their social welfare system. Now, all the temples didn't do this. They had some temples, Moneta, that was coining money. These are government temples. These are government buildings. Uh, the, the temple of Saturn was, uh, that's where you registered your birth certificates so that we'd know when you were eligible for the benefits you get from the other temples. This, I mean, if you want to know where the temples are today, they're all down there in Washington, D.C. That's your ministers. That's your ministers of the world are your ministers. That guy that talks to you on Sunday or Sabbath or meeting days, he's just supposed to make you feel good about the fact that you're in bondage again. 
Now, I'd like to get the land free, but I want to get the living land free. I want to get you free. Well, I can't set you free. You have to repent. Turn around. And start thinking a different way. And seeking the kingdom of God in His righteousness. The modern church isn't doing that. They're seeking the self-righteous thing that they're saved already because they thought a thought about Jesus. But it's not the real Jesus. They aren't, their past, your pastors aren't doing, they're not teaching you pure religion. You're not, certainly not practicing pure religion. You do not take care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society unspotted by the world, the constitutional orders and systems of government. If you're not doing that, if you're not gathering together to do that, you're, you're not going to own land. Pure and simple. You're going to fake it. You're going to think you own it until you lose it. But you don't own land. You don't even own yourself. And until you own yourself, you can't own land. You may be, you know, sneaking around behind the, you know, the billboard so that you don't get caught and not paying taxes. But where are you, where's your tithe? Do you care about the widows and orphans as much as you care about yourself? Do you take care of others? Oh, yeah, I take care of the people that I like. Yeah, well, that isn't that isn't the kingdom. Kingdom is taking taking care of people you don't even know. It's easy to love those who love you. Do you love those you don't even know? How do you do that? How is that kingdom? Now, people have to get their heads on straight. You know, in Ecclesiastes one nine, it says, "The things that hath been, the thing that hath been." It is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes is, it's interesting, you know, it's, uh, and I haven't seen it properly translated, ever, period. <laughs> I mean, ever. I'm being very radical about that. What we see, even the word Ecclesiastes, it's from a word Kohelet in the Hebrew. And they talk about it being, you know, part of the writings. And uh, that uh, the word uh, that we see Ecclesiastes is uh, a Greek translation of that Hebrew word and is often translated teacher or preacher. But it actually means gatherer. That's what the original word means. If you look at in the Hebrew uh, at the original word, it is the word gatherer or gather with an extra letter added to it. What extra letter would that be? Uh, you know, gather, it, it begins with lamad, has, has to do with your hand. I was trying to think of, and a, a hey, which is usually an emphasis word. And then, uh, kuf at the end, which often has to do with kingdom. So we're talking gathering, you know, in, intensively gathering the kingdom. But they add one more letter to make this word that we see transliterated as Ecclesiastes. And it's the word tov. And what's the tov stand for? Faith. You gather in faith. Faith in what? Faith in the way. 
The way is a government that operates entirely, entirely by free will offerings. No forced offerings. See, in the modern church, most of their widows and orphans are taken care of by forced offerings, by men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. But in the kingdom, we don't do it that way. We do it by charity, by free will offerings. You're not doing it by free will offerings. You should not be free. You should actually be under tribute. And, you know, you're conning people into thinking, oh, you fill out these papers and you do this thing and this follow this procedure and magic, magic, presto bingo, you're free. No, you not only aren't free, you shouldn't be free, you know. So anyway, um, and and then there's a lot of other words like uh, they talk about... Uh, that's what we should do is an entire study on Ecclesiastes and to understand some of these things. But, I mean, it will take me hours and hours and hours to <laughs> to go through and, and put it together so we can look at these in the, uh, these individual words, hevel, you know, meaning vain uh, or futile. Everything is futile. Everything is vain. They're telling us this in the, the book Ecclesiastes. What what are what are they really talking about? It's actually the word futile or vain has to do with being mere breath. It's just words. It's uh, blowing in the wind, <laughs> so to speak. If you want to understand how to be free, you have to turn around and think a different way. And you know some of the things that I was going to point out. Uh, so, somebody actually wrote, which I was surprised that he's even on that group. Uh, but anyway, he says, you never owned the land. Even when you followed all uh, the Almighty, it is his alone. Get over it. Read his words. The land is his and you are tenants on his land, which you can never own. And and somebody else says, well, actually, no, the land is man's. God gave it to us. Well, he did. Uh, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that, too, here uh, before we're done today. He did give it to us, but he gave it to us on condition. So, therefore, it is not given to us entirety. God still holds the beneficial interest. What he has given to us is the right to be trustees of the land, or some people say stewards. Somebody else wrote, he says, well, I believe when we talk about true ownership here, we are actually talking about owning or being in possession of the stewardship rights given to us by our Creator and not being under the stewardship under uh, of a, an adversary to Christ or to God. And, uh, and being bound in His trust. And that, of course... The trusts of the worlds are emulating the trusts of God. And the trusts of God actually pass down from generation to generation. The kingdom of God is from generation to generation. And it is the kingdom of God. But we have rights of dominion. Which if we look in Genesis 1.26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish 
of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. He's he's giving us that dominion, but he's giving it just also with stipulation that we see in 128. He says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Not dominion over one another, but upon, you know, we have dominion over the nuts the squirrel gathers, but we are to hold that dominion in a way that fruitful and multiplies and replenishes the earth and subdues it and have dominion over it, this having dominion over uh, the earth and the things that creepeth upon the earth is a very important uh, aspect of uh, of our responsibility to maintain that stewardship. And we we see that uh, repeated over and over again. This uh, have dominion, have dominion, you know, appears numerous times, over a dozen times in the Bible, telling us to have this dominion. And uh, that particular word is uh, is rada, which is actually also translated rule more often than dominion. And uh, to take, to reign, to reign over, to be kings. We are supposed to, there were no kings in Israel because each of us were kings in our own castles and in our own land. And we possessed the land. We had possession. We held it in trust for God. But that's when it's the kingdom of God. People are talking about owning their own land and they, they make vague references to God. Are they really doing what God said? Are they being fruitful and multiplying? Are they blessing others with their ownership? Because if if you're not doing that with little things, then how are you going to be doing that with big things? And so when Israel was in bondage in Egypt, God didn't say, hey, I got some real estate for you. Here's a map that goes there and you just go there and you take that real estate. No. People, he didn't even take them out of bondage. He kept them in bondage and they had to learn to take care of one another without receiving the benefits from Pharaoh. This is the procedure. You know, as Ecclesiastes was just telling us, what has been before is going to be again. Nothing new. So anybody who's coming along and say, oh, you can skip part A, B, C and just go straight to D, owning land. (laughs) Forget it. That doesn't work that way. They had to take care of one another as a nation during extremely hard times through free will offerings and sharing one with another. This is why John the Baptist came first. Telling us that we had to take care of one another. So if you're gathering in a congregation, you should be just giving to your hearts, you know, bursts. I mean, you just, you want to be giving and giving and giving and giving. And you want ministers who give wisely. Not that we don't want hand, you know, hundred dollars to minister, and he just goes and hands it out the car window to a guy with a sign on the street corner. You want to see him actually helping people, strengthening people. Like we we help 
a number of uh, elderly widows in the community. My wife just took one of them to the uh, doctor, and doctors are a long ways off, so they need help driving. And, uh, you know, we talk about ones that, that need their firewood and the roof put on their house and, and different things like this. But we try to involve their family in this process because their family needs to be involved in this process even though they've moved away we try to drag them back and even rebuke them if they're not taking care of their mother or or grandfather this is important to get people you know being estranged from your family is not a good thing and uh, you know I don't see a lot of my family my 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 children I see a great deal of, but, uh, you know, my brothers and sisters have all gone off, but actually we have some of them coming today. Uh, I'm not estranged to them. I'm just often going in a different direction. Everybody has their own life. It's very important. Family is the building block of the kingdom. And I'm, I'm surprised at the number of people claiming that they have a lodial land and their own family is in total disarray. Their own domestic relationships are an absolute mess. Now, I don't know anything about this particular guy, but for some reason I brought that up. And I'm not talking about this particular guy. I've seen this over and over again for over a half a century now. I've been watching people claiming they have this ownership and land, and they don't even know what the kingdom looks like. They haven't repented. They aren't seeking the kingdom of God, and they certainly aren't seeking the righteousness of God. Because all the land in the world today, there are four ways to get land out of, uh, but again, the land I'm most interested in is the people. But I, I would not want to take anybody out of the system who isn't already repenting and seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because I would be doing them a disservice to relieve them of the burden of the system while they still haven't learned the lessons of the kingdom. And so, show me that you've learned the lessons of the kingdom. Israel, you can imagine, no more social welfare in Egypt. And they were addicted to social welfare. I mean, that's how they got into bondage to begin with. They had to depend upon the Pharaoh. They they would have been ready for the famine had they not thrown their own brother into bondage. And this is a theme of the Bible. Go back to Jacob and Esau. We have the the same theme there with Jacob and Esau. And, and we see it over and over again. Where it talks about the... Uh, I was going to read you Genesis 2.15, but maybe I'll go to... Um, the, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge... Of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the days that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So these are conditions on that ownership. I actually jump back to uh, Genesis 2.15, where he puts this in the garden, to dress it and to keep it. And then gave us this command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet guys are still trying to say, hey, I have the knowledge over here. I got it from the tree of knowledge on how to get your land out. No. You want to get the land so that you have a possessory right in it. 
you have to learn to eat of the tree of life. So anyway, that said, let's go back to Genesis 27.40 is what I was actually looking for. And it says, By the sword thou shalt live, and thou shalt serve thy brother, and it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. Okay. How that actually is mixed up in the word order right there. That when you break the yoke off your brother's neck, then you will have dominion. Okay? In other words, when you're willing to set your brother free, then you will have dominion. Okay, right now, everybody in the world, everybody of the world, is under the dominion of the world. They're in bondage. And we've got uh, Ishmaelites galore. Uh, a lot of them are calling themselves Muslims. The oil sheiks of Saudi Arabia, etc. They are just putting more people into bondage. They have their oil and they're trying to jack the price up and control and get wealthy and everything. And they think they'll have dominion. They're going to lose everything. Absolutely everything. And it will be absolutely devastating for them. Because they are not using the wealth that they have been given, the oil that they have been given, to break the yoke from off the neck of their brother. And so therefore they will lose dominion. Now there are probably oil rich sheiks somewhere out there who actually understands Genesis 2740. And he wants to use his riches and power not to make himself, you know, uh, self-serving uh, wealthy, self-indulgent uh, individual, but he wants to actually use his wealth to break the yoke off of the neck of his brother, including his brother Jacob, not just Esau, but his his brothers in the house of Jacob. But anyway, if we go to verse 38, which is before that, we read that this, this statement that we saw in 40 has to do with Esau. And it says, And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing? My brother, bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth. You know, that's the grease, the oil. <laughs> and of the dew of the heavens uh, from above. And then he says, And by thy sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother. So anyway, uh, this is where you see the conflict today of the, the Muslims and the so-called Christians or the sons of Isaac or whatever you want to do. It it really is breaking down to this original blessing. Now, what had happened with Jacob and Esau, and we won't go into a great deal of detail, but Esau sold his birthright. He didn't value it. He sold it for a pot of porridge, you know, for free bread. And, uh, And that's exactly what's happened today in the world with most people is they've sold themselves back into the bondage of Egypt because they didn't have provisions, because they were too busy worrying about themselves and not worrying about their brother. And so they allowed their brother to go into bondage so that they could have more stuff, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, 
uh, health care, social security. They don't mind putting their brother into bondage, coveting his goods. And so they have gone into bondage. You cannot change that without changing the way you think and want to set your brother free. You need to want to set your brother free. And gathering together, which is Ecclesiastes, what it's all about, gathering together in faith, is how you will find freedom. To gather together to set others free, you yourself will become free. We'll talk more when we come back. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, can you own land today? Well, not really. Uh, could you own land? Uh, eventually, absolutely. And uh, But you, again, you don't actually own the land itself. God owns the land. You didn't make the dirt. There's an old joke about uh, science has progressed so much that it can create life and all this stuff. And so, it's it says that we don't need God anymore, and so they challenge God to show them that we can do everything that you could do, and and uh, and uh, God uh, takes a lump of clay. So they're co- going to compete, and God takes a lump of clay and He fashions it into the shape of a bird, and He breathes in it, it becomes a bird, and it flies away. And uh, so the scientist says, "Oh, we can do that," and so they start to gather up you know, elements uh, in the dirt and they started to put it together in a test tube and God says, ho, 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 wait a minute. Get your own dirt. (laughs) Because God made the dirt. He made the clay. He made everything. So the fact is, is that we're not that smart. It's just a joke. But uh, this dominion, God has given us free choice. This is what a lot of people don't get is that God has given us free choice because he has withheld his power to make choices for you. He has granted you the power of choice. He grants it to you under a condition. He gives you a garden. He gives you a tree of life and a tree of knowledge. He says, as part of the requirements of holding and walking in this garden where you have dominion, he says, you can't eat of the tree of knowledge. You have to eat of the tree of life. In other words, you have to walk according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, not according to the vanity of your own mind. So here I am explaining that with words that are passing from my mouth into your ears and into your brain. I'm addressing your tree of knowledge 
so that to encourage you to seek the tree of life. Now, mostly what I do is tear down the construct of your world based on the tree of knowledge. You think you're saved because you've had a thought about somebody named Jesus. But it's not the real Jesus. It's not this real teachings. You know, I mean, all these churches, you read their doctrines. There's very little Jesus in those doctrines. Almost none of the direct statements and commands that Jesus made for his ministers are included in the doctrines of most of these churches. It's all vanity. It's all wind, breath. It's foolishness. The only doctrine we have is the doctrines of Jesus Christ. What he told us to do and not do. Let's try that for a change. (laughs) Gather together in his name. In other words, come together to serve. Come together to lay down your life, not pick it up. Or to certainly not to bite your neighbor's life or to take your neighbor's life. If your neighbor gives five dollars, you should give six. Not in competition to who is going to be the outgiver, but because you do not want to be dependent upon the charity of your neighbor. Now, you may have to be from time to time. If your house burns down, you may need help. If you're injured, get sick, get old, you may need help. Right now, when you're strong and young or semi-young or I don't know how old you are, (laughs) you should be trying to lay down your life in a way that strengthens the poor of a society that has a common communion. Right now, most of the communion that Christians receive, they receive at the hands of men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. They're, most of their ministers, they do not see at church. They see at government offices. Trey Gowdy in the Supreme Court says the government cannot force you into accept, to accept a religious minister. Religion is how you take care of the needy of society. Pure religion is to do that unspotted by the world. The government actually does force you to accept religious ministers when it forces you to accept social security, welfare, uh, you know, all these benefits you have to pay into Obamacare is forcing you to accept religious ministers. And to make an offering at the table of the temples of Rome. Christians would die rather than do that. You are already doing it. You have no excuse not to pay into that. Because you are already a part of such systems. Your parents were taken care of by that religious institution called Social Security. You aren't doing it. You say, well, I can't take care of my parents. They've passed away now. Okay, take care of somebody else's parents. Gather together and start giving like you are seeking the kingdom of God. 
that you are, you know, you're going to pay your taxes to the kingdom of God. And the fact is, right now, they're all deductible if you give to the church. Because the church is, it's automatically considered deductible. Now, there will come a time where it will not be deductible, but right now it still is. What is the difference between the ministers of the world and the ministers of the church? The ministers of the world force the contributions of the people. The ministers of the church do not. The ministers of the church are supposed to be providing all the social welfare for the people in common community uh, according to the perfect law of liberty and the pious performance of our duty in pure religion one to another. The widows and orphans are, the, are simply the needy of the society. The people who need help. And if you actually work together to do that, then you would be free of the Cains, Nimrods, and Caesars, uh, and rulers of the world, because you would be rulers of yourselves. God would intervene. God would bring you back to the promised land. And that's everywhere that your feet go. You would own land. You'd own the right to the means of production. That doesn't mean that you have an exclusive right to the land. Somebody may have a path that they have always walked across that land. And because you've plowed it up, doesn't mean that he can't walk across that land still. So that's just understanding invested rights. I mean, there, I, I found it amazing. All over England, there are ancient paths. And that's what we need to learn to do is walk the ancient paths. But these are paths that have been used for thousands of years. And they go right across people's lands. And people will put up a fence. And the and and this club, the thousands of members all across England, will go and cut the fence and put a gate in there. <laughs> the fences. And that they can open and close to maintain the path. And they... They walk the paths and they make a record of the fact that they walk the paths. Every year, thousands of Brits walk these paths all over England, make sure, maintain the gates. You know, a lot of the property owners now maintain gates and everything, but they cannot fence people off from that path, even though they own the orchard they're walking right through or the cattle field they're walking right through. And... Uh, but they have the right to walk through there because they have have a possessory right to do that. But they continue to maintain an investment in that trail, fixing it up. If it washes out, they fix it up. If a tree falls across it, they cut the tree out. If brush starts growing into the trail, they cut the brush out. If they somebody puts up a fence, they put in a gate. They continue to invest in those paths, and so therefore they maintain a possessor, a possessory right to walk those paths right across somebody else's land. If you go to Oslo, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a giant, you know, city there and everything, and right in the midst of all that, there's a little tiny Baptist church sitting there on multi-million dollar property. But it has a right to to do that. I don't know how long they'll maintain it. Because when my mom was there, she couldn't find anybody. My great-great-grandfather started the church. 
she couldn't find anybody in the church. Nobody seemed to be using it, but maybe they use it on Sunday or something. But uh, this is what you have to do. Well, right now, where is your investment in the kingdom of God? Where is your investment in the kingdom of heaven? How do you invest in the kingdom of God? You invest in one another. You give to one another. And uh, you you have to do it in order to set your brother free from his addiction or his need of the benefactors of exercise, who exercise authority. In other words, you have to do this in order to break the yoke of bondage on your brother if you intend to be free. It's not about you getting land, you know, a lodial property and living off the land and being independent. It's about setting others free. Now, we do this to some degree with our own children. You know, we, we give birth to these children. We raise them up. Hopefully, we homeschool them and train them up in the righteous ways and everything. But eventually, we cut the cord and we set them free and hope that they come back to us. Okay, can you do that with strangers? Because that's where real grace comes in. You don't get grace because you say, Lord, Lord. You get grace when you do the will of the Father. And it is the will of the Father to love the stranger in your midst. To love those who don't love you. To lay down your life for others. So this is why we created the network is so that you can form congregations, not so that you can send emails or get a lot of emails. And people want to know, well, how do you, you know, I don't see any activity. Well, form congregations and start becoming active. And then pray that others become active and persevere in that hope and that prayer. You know, you can't just pray for five minutes or ten minutes or five years and say, well, why isn't my prayers answered? Why isn't there the kingdom of God? Maybe God is testing you, testing your willingness to seek the kingdom of God in his righteousness. Testing your sincerity. I mean, how, how old are you? How long have you been going in the wrong direction? How long have you been paying into the wrong systems, the systems of unrighteousness? How how long have you been doing this? Well, then shouldn't you expect to just do it as for the same length of time to get back? I mean, if you went off the trail for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, how do you figure you can get back to the garden in a year or two years? And isn't it about hope? That you go this way and hope and, and seek that righteousness, not just for yourself, but for others. These are, these are absolutely essentials to your quest for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That you have to continually walk in his walk and walk in his way. Now, we've, we've started a, a study, uh, of the Free Church Report and, uh, you know, we're going through small sections at a time, and it's, it'll take quite a bit of time to get through the whole thing. But once we get through the whole thing, we'll have quite a collection 
of uh, information where anybody could take this course and go through the free church report in great detail and get all kinds of answers. And we've done, you know, the first first chapter. These chapters are very small. I put it in very kind of soundbite almost sections. Free Church and Free Congregation Report. Elements of support and succor for his uh, church ministry. Study this material. And we talk about how to do it. The church is simple and complex. The kingdom of God is very simple. But the way in which it manifests itself is very complex. It's uh, amazingly complex because of the... You know, it's like uh, the living cell. You can you can look at a living cell and say, well, there's the nucleus of the cell and the membrane and, and the protoplasm of the cell and that's it. So there's three parts. Big deal. But actually, there's thousands of layers of complexity that is all automatic going on in the cell for, with immunity and growth and becoming new cells and dividing the DNA. All this is going on all the time. What is guiding that? Is it all just a chemical guide? Well, no, there's a spiritual guide. Same way with the kingdom of God. You have to be eating of the tree of life, not just the tree of knowledge. So we talk about a study course. That's over there in the tree of knowledge. But we're constantly pointing over to the tree of life, which is the Holy Spirit. They give us life. The Holy Spirit is full of patience, full of long-suffering, full of love, full of charity, all of which are, are synonyms. Love and charity are synonyms. It is charitable to forgive others their sins, and unless you forgive others their sins, you will not be forgiven. These themes are constant. If the Bible is about government, then God's government is about the virtues of Christ. Are you cultivating the virtues of Christ in your own life? You know, the we've we got these precepts of the of the Christ define the church. Those precepts of his life, of his anointing, are you being anointed with those same principles? Well, next week we're going to talk about the liturgy of the church. Well, you, you know, liturgy, it means public service. And like I said earlier in the show, Rome took care of all of its needy through free will offerings through the temple area before there were stone temples was an area that nobody owned. Anybody could go there. They owned it in common. But that's where you went to, the ministers went, who would administer the charity of society because that's what bound society together. That's where the sharing took place. Now, obviously, the sharing would also take place in the homes and the families. The whole and everything just as you love your children and your children supposedly love you, you need to love your neighbor. And your neighbor's neighbor. And your neighbor's neighbor's neighbor. And when you start talking about 500 neighbors, you don't even get to know who they all are. But then you have to... if you And you're going to need those 500 and 500,000. 
So you have to have this network where you're constantly responsible for who you give to and he's constantly responsible on how he distributes what he receives. And right now, the workers are few that are actually working for the kingdom. We've got a lot of preachers out there preaching to a bunch of people and getting lots of money, living in mansions because they're making you feel good. But Christ didn't come to make you feel good. He came to get you to do good. That's why it says, you know, it doesn't say seek the kingdom of God and the feeling of self-righteousness. <laughs> It says, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness included laying down his life for his fellow man. That's what you go to church for. Is the opportunity to lay down your life for your fellow man. And, you know, we're looking for minister material. People who really want to make this commitment. And it's a lot harder to find than you would think. It seems to be a lot harder to find than it should be. So the liturgy of the church is not about memorizing catechisms. It's about actually providing the social welfare of society in a common communion within that society that not only takes care of the needy of the little congregation, but the needy of the Greeks. We don't even have people we can go to and say, pick ye seven men yet, much less the seven men to pick. I gave the analogy during our study call, which is on Tuesday, if you want to join the network and find out, uh, that uh, that we're like, at this stage, you know, the the sower is sowing the seeds out there. And the seeds are gone into the ground and they must die to be born again. And I put a picture on Facebook of our oat seeds cracking through the ground. It actually lifted up a section of the dirt. And you can see like 30 oat plants pushing the dirt up. And the blades just barely peeking out. Little tiny blades. Well now, you know, I go back 24 hours later and now you see blades everywhere. And they're... It's, you know, by the end of the week, there'll be just uh, millions and millions of oak plants coming up. But for days, you couldn't see anything. Because the seed was dying as a seed. And it was reaching down into the soil with its roots and eventually would pop up its first green blade of grass for the, you know, of, of grain to the sun and grow so right now we've been preaching this putting these things together for years it's what Christ taught but it requires you are dead and buried we have lots of people who still so that you can be born again we have lots of people that are still buried in church entity buried in the rituals of feelings Buried in the uh, in the liturgy of of rituals and practices that are tantamount to witchcraft that have adulterated the church. I don't want to take away all your singing and in some of your 
social practices. But if you are not creating a daily ministration, not only for your congregation, but for congregations you don't even know, then you are not really seeking the kingdom of God yet. And when you start putting together that daily ministration through a network of congregations or core groups, congregations of recorded elders, we call them core, if you're, if you're not creating that international network, and I'm not talking about being an email group, I'm talking about actually being a part of a congregation where you give, how can you tell me you are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness? You have to be doing that. Because that's the way. And that sacrifice draws you nearer. You are investing in the kingdom of God. And the more people do that, and the more ministers come who come to serve. We talked about communism and the millions who have died. In communism, you always create offices of power. Wherever you have that one purse, somebody's going to get the have the power of deciding how to divide stuff they did not even create. Somebody else created it. Somebody else constructed it. Somebody else found it and refined it. And then this guy comes along he gets to decide how to distribute it. That's an office of power. And that will bring men who seek power. It will not bring men who seek service. Christ created offices of service and said you cannot exercise power. We don't have power over anything you have until you freely give it. And then you get to choose who to give it to. Until then, peace be upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.